and welcome to Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. My name is Brian Hughes, and I'm here with my friend, Tim Elliott. Say hi, Tim. Hi. This is actually the second part of a two-part series we're doing with the Two True Freaks uh, Back to the Bins group. Uh, Paul Spataro, Scott Gardner, and, and, Dr. and Dr. Bill Robinson. <laughs> And Dr. Bill Robinson, as we look over the uh, Ant-Man story in Marvel premieres, issues 47 and 48. Now, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the Two True Freaks episode, stop right now. Go to twotruefreaks.com and download that episode and listen to it, because this is the second part. Correct. If you listen to this, you're going to be a little confused. Now, if you want, hey, we're not going to tell you how to live your life. If you want to listen to this, then listen to part one, feel free. All right, well, with, uh, I guess, no further ado, let's go ahead and go into the Two True Freaks. Hello, and welcome to Third Degree Burn, a podcast where we talk about all things John Byrne. We'll talk about his art, we'll talk about his writing, we may even talk about his lettering. On our show tonight, yeah, we've uh, got a very special show tonight as we continue our crossover with the Back to the Bins group. As we do our shameless obligatory coattails writing review of Ant-Man coming from Marvel Premiere issue number 48. As you may recall, back to the bins, we covered issue 47 and we're just following it up here. Now I'll uh, give it over to Tim Elliott to take it away. Uh, okay, Brian, before I uh, get into this, my little synopsis, let's uh, see who's on a podcast with Introduce us. our guests. That's right. Yeah, you can put in, you can put on the brakes here and introduce our guests. All right. Who do we have with us? <laughs> well, on my on my left here we got Paul Spataro. Hello, thanks for having me on, guys. And on his lap is Dr. Bill Robinson. Wait a minute, is this still not the Jurassic World podcast? Son of a bitch! <laughs> and on Tim's right we have Scott Hitler Gardner. <laughs> And it's Scott H. Gardner. Hey, is that what the H stands for? Maybe that's it. You broke it. Holy crap. Oh, my Lord. He's staring us right in the face, and we missed it all along. Oh, there goes our our German contingent right out the window. Scott Hilter Gardner. (laughs) The two true freaks group have uh, graciously let us in, and uh, this time we're all... uh, jumping together for a good pylon for Ant-Man. And uh, now I'll let Tim take it away. <laughs> All right. Our, our second half of our Ant-Man introduction of Scott Lang is from Marvel premiere number 48 uh, with a cover date of June 1979, sale date of March 1979, cover price of 40 cents. The writer is David McElhinney. Penciler is John Byrne. Inker is Bob Layton. Letterer is... Diana Albers. Colorist is Mario Scene. The story is titled The Price of a Heart. And I will apologize in advance if this is a little long-winded. I wrote my own synopsis. It's uh, did you go to the Dr. Bill School of, it, of synopsis it, writing? It, it may be. I'm trying to do you proud right. here, Bill. Okay. All right. Our story opens with David Cross crawling off of his uh, hospital bed. Who is a, he's our pink-skinned antagonist, and he compliments uh, Scott Lang on his resourcefulness, but basically says, oh, I've got to kill you, though. Cross gives uh, Hank, uh, Ant-Man a nice Hank Pym across the face, and Ant-Man goes down, <laughs> but offers Cross a poke in the eye courtesy of a swarm of ants. 
Lang shrinks down, hoping his small size will go unnoticed, but Cross's heightened senses allow him to smack Ant-Man and stun him. Cross brags some more about how his he has super senses and takes a pair of tweezers and plays operation with the unconscious Ant-Man. Cross manages to return to uh, Lang to normal size, rips his gas canisters off, and breaks off the antennas off his helmet. Dr. Sondheim fears that Cross is going to kill Ant-Man, but he has his guards, Mike and Ernie, lock him in the basement. Chained to a bed, Lang agonizes about how he's letting his daughter down, who is sick in the hospital, and he desperately needs an operation from Dr. Sondheim, and his failure at being a superhero. Cross opens the cell door and gloats some more. Lang demands answers, and Cross is all too happy to give his origin story. He spent his entire life building a global empire, but the stress of being a capitalist has taken its toll. Too much stress has weakened his heart, but he refuses to listen to his doctors and slow down. He discovers that his own company is develop, developing a nuclear, nuclear organic pacemaker made from living nuclear material. And despite the warnings from the scientists who look like they moonlight for AIM, Cross has it grafted to his own heart. Well, the new pacemaker works great. It works too great. And, Cross, and soon Cross feels like a new man, but soon he is a new man. The side effect of his increased heart rate uh, has transformed into a large, pink, swollen monster. But the, the strain is also eroding his heart. He needs to have a, uh, a steady supply of replacement hearts. So that's why he kidnapped Dr. Sondheim, because she developed a new laser heart surgery that allows her to perform the operation quicker, and this it's more safety for him to replace his heart over and over. Cross opens a window and shows a room full of derelicts and bums who he's collected to provide a steady supply of hearts. And But then he informs Lang that now he wants the heart of a superhero, and Lang is next on the list. Cross tells Lang that the operation is going to take place in the morning. He bids him a fair and fond farewell and a good night. Ant-Man pulls a pair of spare antennas from his boot and repairs his helmet, his helmet and sends an SOS to his ants to retrieve his shrink canisters. The ants look for it all night and finally get the canisters back to Lang just as the guards come to take him for the operation. Ant-Man shrinks down and surprises the guards with a growth-induced uppercut. He calls for his flying ants and makes his way back to the operating room. Dr. Sondheim is refusing to operate on Cross anymore until she is until he assures her that the heart donors are volunteers. Yeah, volunteers. Yeah, I'm sure that's how it works. Ant-Man <laughs> flies in and sucks Cross across the chin. Uh, an enraged Cross cries to smash him, but Ant-Man shrinks down and, and grabs his big toe and tops him onto the floor. Uh, an increasingly angry Cross chases Ant-Man around the room, trying to swat him, but suddenly he clutches his chest in pain and collapses to the floor, dead his heart has burst the doctor explains to the bewildered ant-man that she never replaced his heart but just put his old heart back in and since it was already worn out the stress of chasing ant-man around killed him elizabeth (laughs) it's a big one it's coming and it was he went home uh lang confronts the doctor who's feeling bad that she uh broke her hippocratic oath but felt that cross had to be stopped he tells her she did the right thing Basically, now, the whole reason why I showed up was to get you, because I've got my daughter is dying in another hospital, and you're the only one that can save her. Now we go to the epilogue. Lang is waiting for his, do- his daughter to come out of the operating room, and is worrying about going back to jail, because he's sure the ants told Pim that he stole his suit. And issue, the previous issue. 
Dr. Sondheim uh, brings his daughter out and tells her that she is fine. Uh, Lang's thanking the doctor when Yellow Jacket walks in and asks if he can speak to Lang alone. He explains he knew Lang stole the suit and he followed him to see why he wanted it. And explains he was impressed with Lang as Ant-Man and tells him, why don't you go ahead and keep the suit? The world always needs heroes. Yellow Jacket leaves as Ant-Man or Lang decides he will become the new Ant-Man. The end. And I apologize that that was was a little long-winded. Best no, line was was giant. What, what was it? Giant pink monster or swollen monster? Uh, what did I say? He was uh, a large pink swollen monster. That's what she said. <laughs> Beat me to it, you bastard! <laughs> if only, if only I had taken his helmet off. <laughs> Yeah, and and if only I hadn't told him my evil plan. <laughs> well, Cross he, is very arrogant, and he's—I uh, think it's also funny. He's also very polite. It's almost like like the Beast. He's very cordial, and when he's even when he's insulting him. Page eleven. I I think uh, it looks like Scott Lang dropped the soap in the shower there. <laughs> <laughs> And Jose Canseco's come to bat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, do we want to... Let's start with Paul. We'll uh, give general impressions of the book, the issue. All right, well... I still think we got a little cliche thing going on. The the supervillain, you know, giving his... uh, you know, t- telling his mo- giving his monologue during the story to talk about all his uh, his plans and what he's doing, uh, his his thinking that that he's that he, that he could just leave the guy in a in a, in a cell and that's going to be good enough to contain him. Uh, yeah, a little cliche ridden again. I think the art is on a par with the previous issue for the most part. Uh, I, you know, I, I would say the character model for cross is uninspired to some extent mm-hmm. uh, but but otherwise you know it's it's fine and and the the storytelling is solid the pacing on the, on the book is is pretty i think it's pretty fast paced actually uh which is good it's it's a quick read uh and then it all wraps into a you know maybe a little bit too quickly into a nice little bow you know cassie is saved ant man uh, yellow jacket says keep the costume and our adventure continues so back into a little bit of cliche again. But overall, you know, a satisfying read, good story. You know, not great, but good. Does it seem like there's more burn in this issue? Like, it seems like it's more burnish here than Leighton-ish, than the I, previous issue. I think that's the, because you've got more cross in it, and that's obviously Maybe. burn muscles and burn body, and that looks like a kind of a Hulk prototype. So I think that's, to me, that's what, Maybe it makes it seem like it stands out more as burn. Well, also, I think you're getting a lot more white backgrounds or open backgrounds where you're not seeing the use of Zipatone or, or anything behind them in a lot of scenes. So it it, uh, it doesn't yeah. pervade the issue as much as – I mean, in some panels it does. You know, it's just not as pervading as it was in the previous one. And and so that, that kind of takes away from – and then on, on the pages where Cross is, is active – 
he takes up 90% of the page, even, even when he's on, you know, five, six panels. Yeah, because I think they're just tr- – tr- he's trying – he's using that to maybe convey or just g- give him the size, you know, the, to make him look more massive. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and you know, if, if I can uh, jump in this, you know, the one, one thing I'll, I'll say is that there was a, a real good attention to detail from the beginning. You know, when the, uh, the flying ants attacked him in the face and you watch those ants up until the middle of the next page where he finally brushes them off his face and you see them actually being brushed off. Oh, yeah. Um, mm, yeah. That. Yeah, I, I thought that was, you know, there was a, a real good attention to detail there and how he used the little dental pick to, uh, to, to make him grow again on, you know, hitting the thing on the belt. Mm-hmm. But, and then and, and, uh, we get what uh, I believe Scott... Uh, on the uh, Comics Monthly Monday referred to as the Tony Stark origin. Um, the, the bad guy basically has the same origin as Tony Stark, but instead of you know, using his you know, genius to make armor or whatever else, he you know, basically decides to feed off the, the hearts of bums. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not picking the best hearts. Look at those guys. Those guys look like they're, <laughs> they're about gone anyway. Yeah. The nuclear organic. miles on them, yeah. But you know, and then they, they, they like you said, it is the typical villain, you know, mistakes. You know, you shouldn't have your guards have uh, colored or op- you know, translucent uh, face guards. You should be able to see them. They should be clear plexiglass. You know, you shouldn't give your evil plan to the uh, to the hero. You shouldn't leave him with something that allow him to escape. And you know, he, he just does all that. Typical villain mistakes. But it's uh, still a, a beautiful issue, and it introduces, you know, I, I mean, this whole story introduced characters that you'll see in a lot of Michelinie stories going on forward. I mean, we saw Scott Lang and his daughter again um, in the Marvel team-ups that Michelinie wrote um, where they went up against the Taskmaster and also in the uh, Avengers issues where they yeah, went up against they the Taskmaster. Back up in I, Avengers. Think. I think he yeah. shows back up in the, in the Iron Man stuff, too. Yeah, a lot of yes, a lot yeah, of McLean yes. Iron Man. Yeah. What's what's interesting is that this was um this issue th- these issues came out the issues after his actual first appearance and that was Avengers 181 which was Burns first uh issue on his 10 issue run there. Hmm. And so uh, that but that that story actually took place after this story. This story took uh, took place before it. Well, I think the doctor Even shows up. Came out afterwards. Yeah, and I think the doctor shows up in Iron Man. Yeah, she, yeah, she does. I mean, that's that's a, a Michelinie character, and so it's not a surprise that she shows back up. So, well, I think no, I liked it all. Yeah. I, I like this one a lot, except for the the cover. I really hate that cover. Oh, that's a Cockrum. That's cover. a Cockrum cover. Is it yeah. really? Yep. Cockrum yeah, in the cloud. The cloud. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I'm I'm not crazy about the cover either. I, I don't like a lot of aspects of it. I don't like the yellow background. I don't like the background art, which looks to be unfinished. And I don't like the angle that they chose for the shot. Why is the giant? Why is the light bulb there? <laughs> well, why why in, a, in, a, in a lab with all this high tech around do you have a, a hanging, uh, light bulb. hanging incandescent lead light bulb? It's like, what? Mm. Now, the other, there was one question is that, you know, were the, the, the doctor's taking care of this guy, and I can't see what page that is. I think it's page five. Were they with uh, no page nine? Were they with AIM 
Except they're wearing the white AIM. costumes AIM. instead of the yellow ones. So I said they look like they're moonlighting for AIM, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I don't think they're supposed to be part of the same organization. I mean, that's just a, the, you know, that's like your Dr. No typical nuclear protective gear thing. I mean, it's a nuclear organic, a nuclear nuclear organic pacemaker. Nothing will go wrong with that. No. That's the you, you, the one thing it kind of took me out of this story was that I had to say that is really stupid. I that <laughs> <laughs> that I thought he could have come up with something a little better than that just and even for comic book science that seems like nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, I agree. And the fact that it's, it's it just pumps it just basically pumps his, his heart pumps faster so that for some reason he that enlarges his circulatory system and he grows and he gets super senses and all the side effects were a little wonky too. But you know that it's funny because if you read up on the side effects of using human growth hormones most of the the symptoms they described are there. The enlarged organs, the 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 actual body distending and, and becoming larger uh you know the the better physical control over the body uh, that that happens as people start well, using this you know, using the human growth age, hormones. If he said it was a type of growth hormone or something other than living nuclear material grafted to his heart, yeah. What exactly is living, living nuclear, nuclear material? material? Uh, I don't know. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> these two these two issues, while entertaining, are not really breaking any new ground as far as storytelling and uh, and, and just creativity of of the plot or anything like that. It's 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 simply a matter of uh, introducing a new character, and I, and I wonder to this day why they decided to go with a legacy character for Ant Man. I mean, I I know that Hank Pym couldn't carry his own series in the times that they tried, which, unless I'm mistaken, was two times on, uh, you know, Tales to Astonish before Submariner usurped his position in that book, and then again in, in uh, Marvel Feature for about five issues. Uh, but I think, you know, that, that it really comes down to the writing. I don't think you needed to introduce a new Ant-Man just so much as write the Ant-Man you have well. Well, I agree. I think I think if there's anything that does hamper these uh, or hinders these two issues, that it it's the story has to exist under the weight of it has to introduce these characters and introduce them into the Marvel universe instead of just telling a, a two good a good two part story. You you're you know you're saddled with well we have to introduce this character in such a way. So that I mean that's not a huge criticism, but I think that's that does distract detract it from from a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know Scott, you're you're fond of this this rendition of uh, Ant Man as opposed to the Hank Pym one. Yeah, uh, much more you, so. Could you say? Would you be able to articulate what about this character you find to be more appealing? I just think he's edgier. Um, I mean, just in these two issues alone, I think you get more characterization and, and more of an insight into. Scott Lang and, and his personality and his motivations than all of Hank Pym up to this point, at, at least what I have read. Now, 
granted, my exposure to Hank Pym comes primarily from Avengers, from him being, you know, one of the founding members and all that. I've read precious little of his uh, solo adventures in what was that, Tales to Astonish, as Ant Man and Giant Man and all that. But I just, I always saw Hank Pym as. He reminds me a lot of, say, like Barry Allen or Hal Jordan in the aspect of he's just very vanilla. He's very bland and kind of person. Uh, But, you know, up until that point, you know, where he had his his mental breakdown and, and, you know, was kicked out of the Avengers and put on trial and all that. He he never really seemed to have much of anything going for him. And even through that stuff, I would still maintain that he doesn't have so much a personality as that suddenly he was, you know, okay, he's gone crazy. But that's still not a personality. That's something that he's doing. You know what I mean? Well, but I, th- I think, you know, just in defense of the character, I think Hank Pym has always been uh, portrayed as somewhat unstable. Uh, that that's how he actually became Yellow Jacket because in those issues, he he pre- he came out as somebody who who presented as having killed Hank Pym and taken on the Yellow Jacket persona, right? And and you know because because he was unstable at that time. So I think the 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 edgy Hank Pym does go way back. And then I guess if you want a really edgy Ant Man, you can go to uh, Eric O'Grady who is using the Ant Man powers to go into like the women's shower room and stuff. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> When I when I think of Hank Pym, I always think of the uh, that he was always one half of the Wasp and, you know, she was definitely right. you know he he had a thing for her, so he was basically wherever she was. I mean, he didn't want to go back to the Avengers, and and he went back to the Avengers because she wanted to go back to the Avengers, you know. So being being the hero wasn't necessarily what he wanted to be. That's why he changed, in, in my opinion, why he changed, you know, from being Ant-Man to Giant-Man to all these different characters that he's been, all, you know, all, all the way through. And when he finally showed up in West Coast Avengers as, you know, just Hank Pym in a red jumpsuit, with you pockets. know, yeah, with the pockets, <laughs> the cargo, <laughs> the cargo suit, uh, you know, it, it was refreshing. It was, it was like, okay, there's something about him that's more interesting here. Um, of course, that kind of just floated off into nothingness as far as you know, I'm concerned after Byrne left the book. Right. Because I don't think anybody had an idea what he was doing, what he was wanting to do with the characters when he left. Well, I think when he was in West Coast, they were trying to infer that he thought of himself as a different, not maybe a superhero. He was more of a support person, really. He was, because yeah. he didn't wear a costume. He just had his pockets that he could, you know, and then it, they introduced that he had been exposed to his pin particles so much that he could shrink anything. So he just carried everything he needed in his pockets, and he could enlarge yeah, them when they needed them. So I, I remember him taking Wonder Man and shrinking him and throwing him into the fake Ultron's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and just having him grow up a few seconds later and causing Ultron to explode. I thought that was really really cool, and it was one of those things where they kind of read Richard Hank Pym, but then again, Hank Pym is supposed to be. A genius. He's just you know you 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 think Reed Richards is the is the top tier, and then everybody starts to you know go down from there. Tony Stark and then Hank Pym and then was it was Pym else part of the Illuminati or is he not? No. He's not is he? No, but he, but he was the scientist supreme. 
Yep, the Scientist Supreme. Scientist, scientist Supreme. Does that mean he stands next to Doctor Strange? In his own way, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, personally, I, that's when I found Hank Pym to be at his most interesting is when he was merely tech support, you know, for the West Coast Avengers. I, I, I kind of liked that incarnation of him because, you know, he was something of uh, of a failed hero. And again, not to me anyway, not particularly interesting as a hero. So now, you know, change him up a little bit and make him... Uh, you know the the sci- you know the team scientist so to speak or almost I almost saw him more almost like in a Q capacity you yeah. know Q from James Bond I mean yeah. you know to where he was he was supplying them with tech and and gear and that sort of thing but not necessarily uh, you know suiting up to you know go into battle with with the rest of the team although he you know he did mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Now, you guys have brought up Eric O'Grady, who was like the third Ant-Man. But now, as, as I understand it, Ant-Man, as Scott Lang Ant-Man, he actually died during what Avengers Disassemble. Didn't Scarlet Witch right. kill him? Yeah. But they brought him back. He got better. <laughs> yeah, he got better. Like, like, I guess better. His, In the Children's Crusade, he, they brought him back. Well, his daughter, didn't she become stature? And, yeah. then, they, and then they killed her off in Children's Crusade. They brought <laughs> him Dr. back and killed off her. Doctor Doom killed her. Is that right? Yeah. Is she still dead? As far as I uh, know, who, who knows? You know, you know they're going to bring her back because they recently rebooted uh, a new Ant Man series with Scott Lang. You know, in in anticipation of the movie, so I wouldn't be surprised if she's back in that. Well, they're going to probably un- they're going to change everything after they finish Secret Wars. Who knows what the hell's going on? I'm I'm lost. <laughs> yeah. Now we don't typically grade our books like we do on uh, on Back to the Bins, but uh, I, I would definitely uh, defer to that, considering the guests we have. So, uh, Paul, you wanna you have anything else to sure. say, or would you like to go ahead and, and throw a grade out? No, I'll I'll throw a grade at this. Uh, as as we said, I I'm really not too crazy about the cover. I think this one pales compared to the last issue. Um, I, I, I don't like the coloring at all. Uh, I, I, the yellow background, I think, does, you know, is, is poor. Uh, the coloring on, on Cross is off of the model inside the book. Uh, the blue ants don't look so good. Uh, just, you know, and that's, that's just talking about the coloring. The artwork itself, again, like I said, I'm not crazy about the angle that they chose. And, and the background has precious little detail to it. Uh I'm just going to say a C minus. I'm going to say below average, but it's still Dave Cockrum, so I'll, I'll, I'll still keep it in this C range. Uh, the interior art, I think, doesn't really miss a step from the prior book, except for the fact that there is more of the giant hulking cross, uh, and, and his, his look doesn't isn't complemented by Leighton quite as well as the prior issue where we had a lot more Ant-Man. Uh, so just because of the way the story goes, I think it, it, it's just, it complements the art style a little less than the previous issue did. So I'm, I'm going to say a B plus on the art, drop it down from an A. And the story, again, I still think it's cliche ridden. I still think, you know, that 
we're not breaking any new ground here. Uh, there's some silly plot points to it, like the snapping off his antennas and that he still has new ones in his pocket. Um, I'm going to say the same as the first story and say a, a B minus on the store on the uh, writing, and overall, I'm going to give the book just a B. All right, Bill. Um, yeah, the cover. Ah, yeah, the cover's just there's no detail in it like the last one. It's very very basic. It looks almost rushed. Um, I think the ants are really cold because they're blue. Um, and I I mean the only thing that really looks good and isn't even that great is you know is uh, Cross on on the cover you know but even he's he's not really a match for what's on the interior because one thing I noticed on the cover his eyes look normal, but if you look in the book, his eyes are almost solid black, or they are completely yeah. black. It's like all pupil, you know, for his hypervision. So, uh, yeah, the cover, I'm just going to give it a... Even though it's it's Cockrum, I'm going to give it a C, and that's being a little bit generous. Interior, the art looks a little different, and maybe that's what, like, you guys put, you know, when you brought up the fact that Cross is dominating the first part of the book, and that's maybe how how it looked different from before. Whereas before we had all Ant Man, so we had more details. Uh, but it's still good art overall, though. Um, I'm thinking a B on the interior art, and the story is just still as wonky as last time. So that's going to be a C. So I'm going to say overall C plus. All right, Scott. Uh, yeah, I don't dig the cover on this one. There's there's something off with it. I uh, I love Bob McCloud, but uh, you know, I, and I'm not the biggest Cockrum fan in the world, but I generally like the guy. There's just there's something off with this, um, and I, I can't quite put my finger on it. The yellow doesn't help. The blue ants don't help. Um, it, it's just really freaky looking. Um, really about the only thing I can really say uh, positive about it is uh, that look on Cross's face. Uh, yeah, I see that in the mirror quite often, but beyond that, <laughs> um, something has changed in the interior art in this issue, and I can't put my finger on it. It's it's like the Leighton is dialed way back, so I almost wonder if maybe uh, maybe Byrne did say something about the inking in the first one or something. I, I really don't know, but it's so it's so, just not so, quite the same. So you thought that too? It's like I said, it seems more burnish than yeah. late from the previous one. Yeah, it, it's. I almost wonder if maybe it was rushed because it just isn't as strong. As uh, as the first issue, one thing I definitely did notice, though, is that there's clearly Leighton is still in it, though, because on pages, I think it's yeah seven and ten, where Cross is giving his origin story, essentially, Cross looks remarkably like Earth to Bruce Wayne right around the time just before he uh, he was killed in Adventure Comics. He looks a lot like him right there. 
Yeah, I, I, I can't help but think that uh, that you and Paul were a little hard on the story, though. I, I still think the story's fantastic, and I would argue that it doesn't do some original stuff. I really think that it does. I mean, it's not completely original, but I like the idea of Marvel doing, uh, doing a legacy hero. It is, you know, it's odd that it's Ant-Man, but I like that because that's not typically their shtick to do legacy characters. That's much more a DC trope, especially around this time. So the fact that they did that and it wasn't, you know, father passing it to son or uh, uncle to nephew or something like that was that like was done with, this, you know, some other Marvel characters. This was, you know, somebody completely different and a criminal, you know, or at least, you know, an, an ex-con and uh, and I like that. I, I think it just it it gave uh, something different to this character. I was going to say a much needed boost, but I mean, who really needed Ant Man? You know, who really was clamoring for? Yeah, gee, you know who I wish would come back? Ant Man. <laughs> no, but I somehow I think that makes it that much cooler when it works. And in this instance, I think it does work. Uh, like I say, this this issue is not as strong as the first one. But I still really enjoy the hell out of it. I really uh, was noticing here toward the end of the story how much I really like Burns' yellow jacket. I don't think I ever really uh, took much note of this before. He looks remarkably Batman-like, but at the same rate, you know, he, he's I, unique enough that uh, that he's pretty cool. I like cool. what they did with the. Um, now I don't know if that was latent that put that made the eyes look insect-like. I mean, yeah. I mean that just c- kind of stood out. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's been done in other books, but it just seemed to really pop right there. Yeah, yeah it does. One Look thing at the size of the shoulder blades he put on him, though. How could you, how could you get into a fight with those things? <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to make the same comment. Is I, I noticed that the the wings, the shoulder, whatever they're supposed to be, much much larger on this version of um, Yellow Jacket that I can recall ever seeing on any other version of him. And yeah, he has zero peripheral vision now. <laughs> so I mean, you could walk up and sucker punch him, you know. So long as you're not looking directly at him, you'd have the advantage in any fight with him. Or a woman. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, something that didn't come around first time, you know, with the first issue that I was kind of surprised, nobody really mentioned that, uh, you know, if you put Burns Scott Lang and Burns Banshee side by side, you'd have a hell of a tough time telling them apart, I think. <laughs> Anybody else yeah. notice that? Yeah, I didn't. Well, I, but how do you say? The only thing, it, oh, only thing come on, come on. Be the pipe. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say one smokes a pipe and one doesn't. Come on, that's easy. Yeah, hey, I got to meet pipe with me all the time. Yeah, one <laughs> has an Irish accent. That's how you can tell them apart. I know that it's a, a common criticism that's been leveled at Byrne that you know he only has you know a, a couple of stock faces for both men and women, and I, I, you know completely reject that. I think that's ridiculous. However, at the same rate, it can't. You know, you can't argue that sometimes, you know, he does have certain characters that do look a lot alike. And I, I just couldn't help but notice it here at the end of the story uh, when he's wearing basically his, uh, you know, lumberjack clothes with a with the trench coat over it. That I was like, that was the first thing I thought is, wow, he looks a lot like Banshee right there. And when Yellow Jacket is uh, flying out the window at the end and kind of wishing him good luck, that is uh, one of Burns' uh, stock superhero in flight poses because I know he would use yeah. that same pose for 
Superman a good number of times. But, oh, yeah. uh, so, you know, uh, grades. Let me see. Cover. Gosh, I, you know, I hate to say it. I think I can give you the cover a straight up D. I, I really just don't care for it. It, it, le- it really needs improvement. The interior art, um, I'd almost have to grade it separately between the pencils and the inks because I think the pencils are just as strong as they were in the first issue, but somehow something's lacking in the ink. It, it has a, a certain unfinished quality to it, um, except for for Cross's origin story. I'm I'm having to hunt for the Layton in here, which is not usually the case with Bob Layton. He usually is kind of heavy-handed with his inks. I think you see the Layton on Ant-Man, but not on Cross. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that could, yeah, that's true with the with the um the Zipatone on the helmet. Yeah, that's true. That is true. The Zipatone, the shine, yeah, the highlights from the light, you know, different things that he's doing there. I think you see the Layton in that. But I think I think a hulking figure, you don't see the same thing, which is a little surprising because he because Layton did such a beautiful Hercules, you would think he could handle a right. figure. Right. Yeah, something has definitely changed between the two issues, and I'm just not entirely sure what it is. It, it does most definitely have a certain rushed quality to it. Um, but beyond that, I, so you know, like I say, D for the cover. Um, I'm gonna say. I'm going to step the art down a, a little bit in this. I'm going to say B+, because it's just not as strong as the first time around. Um, and uh, I'd still go with whatever I went with for the story for the first part. I don't remember what I went with. I think I said, I don't know, B+, or whatever I said. So I, I think I'd say the same thing for the story in this one. That's that's all right. about all I got. Thanks, Scott. All right, Tim, what you got? Uh cover uh i won't be quite as harsh on the cover uh i am a cockrum fan but i do see uh your criticisms i think it does look rushed it 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 almost appears that lang and cross were were penciled in and detailed and then the rest was almost like it was handed over to somebody else and just here finish it out i'm wondering if that yellow background or the blue ants are on that yellow background is because those are complementary colors maybe whoever colored it thought they would stand out pop more but their wings look there. There's no consistency with the ants. Their wings look way too big for their bodies. So I'm going to give the cover a B minus. The art inside, uh, I do agree. I think uh, you can't see Layton as much. Uh, it didn't quite feel to me like it had stepped down. So I thought it was as strong as the first issue. So I'm going to give the art an A. The story, I'm going to downgrade a little bit because I thought the the science was just that just took me right out of the story and i thought it was just too kind of silly and wonky and michelini could have come up with something a little better than 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 a living organic nuclear heart or whatever he came up with but so i'm giving the story a c so i think that uh about a c plus overall not a bad issue but just not as strong as the first one yeah 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 it's not that i thought it was bad yeah it's just yeah it had some weaknesses there are definitely things to take a knock at, and, and, and that's the thing. When I look at that cover, um, the, the one thing that, that stands out to me is just Ant-Man himself. He looks good. He, for some reason, there's something about his pose and everything there that evokes Ultra Boy from the Legion of Superheroes to me. And part of it's, I guess, the costume and all that, and Cockrum did, did that a bit. So the, the thing that really just 
bugs me to no end on this cover, though, is what is Cross doing with that panel? Is he ripping it away to, to lift it up, or is he swinging it around? Or The, the way it looks, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to what he's trying to do there. And that grimace on his face just makes me think of those weird uh, witch people from the old Popeye cartoons. You remember the, the women with no mouths? <laughs> that's, that, that's for whatever reason that's what it makes me think of just the cover bug, bugs me in in a big way and so I was, I'm was i definitely giving the cover uh, a D now moving into the book um, I believe that, that the mistake here that hurts the art is the the work on the the character of Cross himself I think it would have been a lot better for them if they showed him like they they didn't on the very first page, and then got him some form of costume. You know, being being who he was, if they had put him into a costume, it probably would have uh, helped the art a lot better because these gigantic expanses of pink just make you think of some real ham-fisted thing moving around, lumbering around, and it 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 kind of hurt the art there. And I think you know, it, that Scott and others were onto something that maybe this. You know that Leighton didn't have as much time to do the inking because we definitely see a lot more whites around the panels and areas for not necessarily floating heads, but uh, you know almost a, a lot of talking heads. Beyond that, though, the art is beautiful. Um, we see some great things in there. Uh, so I'm going to give the artwork on the story a B, just a straight B. The story, I'm going to give uh, a straight C to just too many things. The um, not taking that helmet off is just a you know the typical villain mistakes are, are what really bugs me there. And even Aunt, uh, not Amim, but uh, Henry Pym's uh, description of everything just is a little too unbelievable for me. You see someone stealing your stuff, you're going to want to stop them or say something. You're not just going to want to follow them and kibitz so to speak unless of course you you know like, like they did there where he get, he fell prey to one of the little lasers that they had in there i just it it didn't gel with me as far as you know what i'd known of the character so well, makes, i'm I, go ahead oh well it makes me wonder and I'd, i thought this that in the first issue when he's breaking into the house and the door pops open he goes oh look a costume and later you find out that ant man uh Jell-Jack was watching him the whole time is it possible that Yellow Jacket triggered that door to go off? He wanted him to find the costume, possibly? Now, if this was the messed up in the head Yellow Jacket, I guess that would be possible. I don't know when that really started. I thought that was more in the 200s era of the Avengers when we, were, when we really started to see that. Well, now, like I said earlier, I, I think they kind of started with the messed up in the head thing early. But it hadn't become like a, a serious plot point. It was just kind of like a side thing. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that's what they were going for here, but I guess you could no yeah. prize it away with that. True, true. Now, onto what you know, you guys were saying about the personality of Hank Pym versus the personality of Scott Lang and how that one makes the, the, the character a little bit more, I guess, palatable. I, I sit there and I kind of think about it the same way a lot of people think of Hal Jordan versus Kyle Rayner or even, you know, or even Jon Stewart. You know, the, they're all different guys. They all got different imaginations, and so they ha how they handle the rings makes them completely different characters. And what we see in this one that, you know, Scott Lang is kind of imaginative in the way that he uses this. He's intuitive uh, on there. And, of course, you know, some of that comes from the fact that, you know, 
probably he had to, to learn how to fight to defend himself when he was in prison because you know you either do that or he wouldn't be able to fit in those trunks. Mm. But yeah. So as far as the story goes, I'm, I'm definitely giving that a C. Overall, I'd say it's probably a, a B minus though. B minus C plus. Anyone got anything else on this? Well, I, the only thing I want to just kind of tack on to mine that the one thing that I think it, these two issues did do that is original are the shrinking effects. I thought Byrne used some pretty ingenu- ingenious ways to show him uh, attacking the guards and just shrinking in general that I thought were you know pretty original. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that definitely. It is very dynamic. And so you like you like to see it that way. Not every artist is as dynamic in that way of uh, showing the 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 super abilities of someone, or even showing someone running. Yeah. That uh, you know, Byrne and Perez, and you know, some some others are, are really good at that. You see later artists who do, who don't even know how to show someone running, so it just looks like a pose. So yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've uh, I think we've done this one as well as we can. I want to thank you guys for being on the show. Uh, we just we really really had a blast. There are you know there's 40 years worth of material on on John Byrne that we've got to cover over the years uh, or as time goes on here so if you guys you know have a subject that you want to cover with us just shoot it and we'll we'll schedule it out um, we've got OMAC coming over probably the, the next two months because we're going to break that that mini series up but beyond that you know we're still mm-hmm. taking submissions of ideas of what people want to hear hear about yeah it, it could be you know yeah. you want to you want to guess you know, guest on the show, then you pick the story and we'll cover it. I know, I know for me personally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about the mainstream stuff, but I'm, I'm probably more interested in hearing when you do things that are a little bit less, you know, le- less uh, heralded. You know, the, the X-Men stuff, the, you know, Alpha Flight, the Superman, Fantastic Four, those are all great. And, and I'll enjoy hearing what you have to say about those things. But when you do things like OMAC, like you said, or or if you're doing Blood of the Demon or Champions or things like that, I think those are the things that I'm going to get a bigger kick out of, to be honest with you. You know, that that's you actually brought up something that I wanted to mention earlier, and, and I forgot, and that was about the Champions. Because Byrne and Leighton did the, the Champions two years before this, and the difference between the artwork in the two books is night and day, in, in my opinion. When you look at the two, you know, Leighton definitely uh, didn't assert himself using the Zipatone. The, the, now, of course, what I'm uh, reading on those are digital reprints uh, that, that, you know, came from, uh, you know, some bound volume. So it's very, very clean coloring. It makes it look really, really cartoony. And it's definitely, you know, definitely not what I would call Burns best. Still got some dynamic pieces to it, but uh, when we do get that, that definitely be uh yeah you're gonna see a lot more critical you know comments there i think yeah i, I think it's it's it, it's a little yeah. bit more, it's a little bit more open for analysis than stuff that you can say oh yeah that was great <laughs> was that chris farley yes that was awesome all right okay well um if you guys don't mind i've got one actually i've got one email to read <laughs> 
from uh, this one is from Kevin Wilson, a good friend of mine. Uh, he says, "Hey guys, I listened to the first podcast. I think this is a great show, especially for the first episode. I love the context of the conversation, how the flow of the podcast went. I also love the intro music, and I thought it was fitting. The uh, I got the power bit is what he's talking about." Awesome. Keep it up. I hope to hear more. And when can I get you guys on my podcast app anyway? Thanks and keep them coming. So uh, thanks, Kevin, for, for the, for the uh, email as far as uh, when, you, when we'll get on your podcast app. I don't know what, what podcast app you're using. I know that we should be showing up on uh, iTunes under the Two True Freaks feed uh, anytime soon. Very soon. Very soon. All right. Well, uh, hey, Tim, do you want to take us out? Yeah, I'll take it. I just want to thank Paul and Scott and uh, Bill, is everybody still here? Everybody is so quiet. I am. Yep. <laughs> that maybe uh, you guys that were an hour ahead of us had uh, dotted off. We're like little. Um, <laughs> I just want to. We're like little mice. <laughs> thank you guys for showing up and taking the time to be on our show. We're a, you know we're a fledgling show, so it means a lot to have you uh, experienced fellows to come on and help us out. We it was a great time being on y'all's show too. And Paul. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> well, you're the producer, Paul, so you've got yeah, more Scott experience than Hendrix. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, like guys. I, I really appreciate you. Uh and thank thanks Scott. Oh, I was for, say, uh, I was are you I'm gonna start getting into goofy gopher mode. Oh, after you, please, after you. No, sir. After you. I want to thank Scott for just inviting <laughs> us. Really, Thanks, guys. Yeah. I, I do appreciate uh, all the advice you've uh, you know, given us. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank, just personally thank Scott for inviting us on right. Two Tree Freaks and well, letting us uh, try for... it. We are breaking up, I think. Yep. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll please bear with us, we're experiencing technical difficulties. Bullshit. Yeah, I think we're breaking up real bad. Um, yeah, that is hard to do. But <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and close this up now. But for uh, Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. I'm Tim Elliott. And as always, with me is <laughs> Tim Elliott. Elliott. Thanks, guys. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked and young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived, and nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com. And we're back. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a lot, got a lot of fun with the guys there. I hope you did too, Tim. Uh, it was a great time. I think anybody who's, gonna, who's anxious to see the movie coming up is going to find this very important podcast to listen to. And yeah, I, we think, also, I think it tied a lot. I, I think there's a lot of stuff in these issues that actually is going to tie in with the movie. Uh, I agree. I think uh, a lot of the the uh, the storyline they're they're borrowing pretty heavily from this storyline for the uh, the movie coming up. And uh, I just want to take the time right now to thank our very special guests uh, Scott Gardner, Paul Spataro, and Dr. Bill Robinson for coming on and helping us out and covering oh, these yeah. two issues. 
couldn't have done it without him. Absolutely couldn't. We are we are a fledgling podcast, so it's good to have uh, some veterans in here to hold our hand and show us what we're doing and have some fun with them. Yeah. All right. Coming up on our next episode of Third Degree Burn, we'll be looking at uh, the first two issues of the OMAC series that John Byrne did in 1991. That's right. And don't forget, part one of the show for covering Ant-Man can be found at 22freaks.com, Back to the Bins. So that show will hit first, and then you can uh, check ours out at, for part two. So if they're listening to us right now, then they need to go back and listen to the other one here the first half? That's right. If you're hearing this right now, you must be very confused because you <laughs> listened all of part two, and you need to go back and listen to part one. That's right. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at 22freaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number 3, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number 3, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to 22freaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. All right, I'll be mad.